Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Those who train with us learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. This week, we are joined by James B. John, Alistair Roberts, and Jeff Myers, and we are back this week walking through the book of James. To recap briefly where we've been in chapter two, James has been encouraging these Christians to reject any partiality with those who come into their midst, especially um, if that partiality is shown to get favor with the influential or the powerful or the wealthy. And uh, Christians need to always be ready to be open to whoever God sends our way, whether they are dressed in fine clothing or if they come in run down by the world and run down by their own sin. And Jeff mentions in his commentary on James that it's easy to rush through these early verses uh, in chapter two to get to the so-called more meaty or more substantial or controversial passages that we'll be discussing today. But we always need to keep the full context in mind when we read uh, any portion of the Bible. James moves from impartiality to justification. The background to a discussion of faith and works here uh, that we'll see today is an encouragement to Christ-like balance and dealing with real life people and dealing in the real world. To start off, I'll just read a couple of these verses. I won't read the whole passage, but this is James 2, 14 through 16. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So to begin, while it would certainly be fun to jump ahead here into a discussion of faith and works uh, and controversies surrounding those doctrines, it's useful to understand why James jumps into this discussion and know the function of this section, uh, the, the function of it in this epistle. One reason that we don't want to simply have a doctrinal discussion about justification proper right off the bat is that that's not how James is even approaching the subject. Um, James is not even thinking about the Apostle Paul, even when he writes this, um, as James was likely written possibly even a decade before Paul began his public ministry. And Jeff, you write in your commentary that reading James 2, 14 through 26 as a polemic against Paul's faith alone will actually get us nowhere and cause us to miss some of James's larger concerns. So to start things off, I want to ask, how does the full context of James affect our approach to this passage, both his audience and their and their context? How does that affect how we come into chapter two here? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think it needs to be answered up front, uh, dealt with up front before you come to a passage like this, which has a history, of course, in uh, the polemics, theological polemics, uh, especially since the Reformation. Um, and we're we're, it's easy for us to just see these words justification about justification, dikao or dikaios une, and think, oh, wow, uh, this is all about James answering questions that we have about the doctrine of justification. Now, I think this obviously is going to contribute to our understanding of justification, but we need to get there through the context. Uh, remember, James writing to brothers. They're leading displaced and victimized Christian communities. They're being oppressed by zealous adversaries, and certain brothers are being tempted to mimic those adversaries with angry rhetoric, talk, uh, 
designed to stir up resentment and thereby vindicate or justify themselves before God and their enemies. So when James begins this section with a reference to someone who says he has faith, and then throughout the argument contrasts what people say with how they act or behave, that's consistent with James' overall argument against dangerous speech, uh, especially that being uh, put forward by the leaders of the community. And he's going to lead into that immediately after this section in chapter three. And that kind of faith that's centered on, on heated speech making, if you will, and designed to inflame people against their enemies, that won't save or deliver any of them. Also, so remember this vindication that they're seeking, this salvation is not just about going to heaven. It is that. I mean, there, that's, there's that layer to this for sure. But James is not just dropping into his epistle a section on how to get to heaven. There's very significant help there when it comes to that question. But this is also about vindication. These loudmouth leaders talk about their faith, give no evidence in their lives of works of mercy and obedience. So they're fools. They, ex they, they should not expect justification or vindication from God with this kind of behavior. They need to be, remember, back in chapter one, slow to speak, slow to speak, slow to anger. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So provocative talk about faith won't bring them vindication and deliverance, rescue, the kind that they're looking for. And with, with that in mind, we're going we're to look at this, of course, obviously in more detail. Everything he references here in this section, in these two or three paragraphs, is really intimately connected with their situation as they're experiencing this marginalization and banishment from Jerusalem and this persecution from their enemies. How are they going? How should they respond? Is it just talk or is it their behavior that's going to evidence true faith and result in deliverance and vindication? Just perhaps a, a more general comment along, um, along uh, the same issue. Different books in the, in the New Testament can often tackle the same issue in, in quite different ways. I mean, uh, take, for instance, the doctrine of, of union with Christ. Now, that is utterly central to Pauline doctrine throughout his um, works, but it's also central to the book of Acts and to the kind of warp of its its narrative. You know, the, the disciples do what Jesus did. They continue uh, what he began. Some of them die the way Jesus died, uttering the same um, words. You know, Paul finds out that he's um, persecuting Christ insofar as he's persecuting Christ's body. And, and so um, the, the idea of union with Christ has in uh, Acts a particular slant. It's sort of what it looks like in in practice, what what it uh, how it manifests to outsiders and 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 that kind of thing. Um, and Paul on theology um, addresses that in a different way altogether. But we we don't when we think about those things try to flatten out the differences um, between those two things and and 
sort of um, in order to stick them together. We, we accept that sort of different New Testament books can have different um, angles on things. And I would, I would suggest, and I think this is pretty much what Jeff has been saying, that we, we've got something similar going on here in, in terms of the doctrine of, of justification, different slants on the same thing. And it might also be worth on that line thinking about the possibility of actual equivocation in the key terms. So when we're talking about justification by faith in Paul and not by works, those works tend to have a very specific flavour. They're works of the law. The emphasis is upon not being justified by um, being marked out by the Torah and being marked out as a Jew through circumcision and through observation of the dietary requirements and things like that. That does not seem to be the emphasis within James to the same extent here. James is talking about works in a more general sense. And we've seen that already within his letter, the way that he's treated the works by which someone is, um, by which true religion demonstrates itself in chapter 1, verse 27, for instance. And those concerns, I think, continue here, that faith works itself out by works. It's expressed in that way. It's manifested. It's the sign of the true life of faith. Many of the concerns that you'll see within the reformers, for instance, in the ways that they make clear that justification of standing with God is not on the basis, we're not welcomed into God's presence on the basis of things that we have done as if we have to earn our presence before the Lord. But yet, at the same time, there is vindication for those who are faithful and faith is manifested through faith, faithfulness. Now, when you're dealing with Paul, there is a lot more of an emphasis upon the Jewish character of the law and works as the works of the law. And so I think we need to be aware of the fact that Paul and James might be using the same terms with different senses. And so they're not disagreeing with each other, but they are. A, there is an equivocation um, taking place. If we try and bring them into direct conversation, we need to deal with them both on their own terms. And then having understood them on their own terms, we'll find bringing them into conversation a lot easier. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Uh, notice also that the move from chapter two, verse 13, into the discussion of faith and works, there's a connection for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And then the works that James is talking about here, the works of mercy. See, this, these, um, these brothers here that James is addressing are all about judgment. Um, and judgment's going to come. We'll see in James 5 that God promises judgment on apostate Jewish oppressors, but they want to, they want to bring that judgment themselves. And James is saying, look, uh, mercy right now is the way you are going to triumph, uh, the way you are going to be delivered. And so you have the brother or sister that's poorly clothed and needs food. You have also these two examples later on, Abraham and Rahab, which really fit with their situation. Abraham was tested. Uh, and they're being tested. Remember back in, in James 1, the testing of their faith will produce steadfastness and then ev eventually maturity. Well, uh, Abraham's faith was matured. Uh, same verb there in verse 22. And then 
Rahab. Rahab is someone who helped the messengers escape and get out. Uh, that's an act of mercy as well. And that also fits with their situation. No doubt, they have to sacrifice. Some of them maybe have to sacrifice their son like Abraham, but they also have to be very careful. We have lots of examples from the early church of, of how Christians had to be very cagey with regard to the oppressive officials coming in and trying to, to get them. Uh, we even have Paul, of course, in Acts chapter 9, I believe it is, who has to be let out by a basket uh, when officials come to arrest him. So all of this needs to, first of all, be grounded in their life situation, in their and what's going on with them. And so this, this mercy triumphing over judgment is fleshed out, I think, in James chapter 4, verses 14 through 26. I think it's also useful pastorally, Jeff, maybe you can speak to this, um, to zoom out and see how James is speaking to his people. And while this is a letter and not necessarily a sermon, it's a powerful rhetorical device to ask questions like this when you're speaking with people or when you're preaching a sermon or giving a lecture. To drive these points home, he asks some pretty pointed questions about their specific context. And for a pastor and for those who are preaching the word, I think this is often something that a lot of practitioners don't utilize um, when they should in your sermon, asking questions about yet you have your text that you're preaching on, but using that to actually ask questions of your congregation about where they are, maybe even using examples that are appropriate from the life of the body. You know, James is not fearful at all of using these rhetorical devices of asking these questions and then using examples from the Old Testament to, to drive the point home, that would make for some pretty powerful sermons, though potentially uncomfortable as the, as the congregation has to face uh, where they are in the life of the body. Any thoughts on that? One of the things that is interesting on that front is that he engages in a sort of diatribe where he has this imagined interlocutor and he puts words in the mouth of this interlocutor as a foil for his own exploration of his position. And so he has this series of objections that could be brought forward against his position or series of claims that could be made that he presents a response to. And one of the challenges for interpreters here is determining which words are actually being put in the mouth of this supposed interlocutor and which words are James's own words in response but it's a very it's a very brilliant rhetorical device within this context. It takes a bit of delicacy to handle well, and you need to be attentive to see when one voice is switching to another. But it's something that would work very well within many sermonic contexts. Yeah, great. And James is doing this throughout his letter. Um, he's asking questions, pointed questions like this in chapter 3, chapter 4. Uh, this is one of his rhetorical strategies uh, to get them to think carefully about what they're doing or what they're not doing. That's in general an interesting feature of the epistles, isn't it? Because as we start the New Testament, we're used to that kind of dialogue, but often between, let's say, Jesus and the Pharisees or Jesus and various other people. And obviously in the epistle that dialogue you know there is a similar um, method but obviously the 
interlocution has to be sort of simulated and it's interesting that there is that continuity between sort of the um the the oral uh, give and take of the gospels and uh, the later epistles you also find that sort of give and take at various points within the prophets brian you you mentioned at the outset that um this letter may well have been written a long way uh, a long time before paul um and I think that's quite, you know, strikes me at least as, as quite um, probable. Um, we do obviously, though, have Jesus talking about um, justification um, mm-hmm. a, a fair amount in the Gospels. And I wonder if it's fair to say that the way in which James uses the term justify has at least got some of the nuances of the way in which Jesus uses it. So um, Jesus might say, for instance, you know, wisdom is is justified by her deeds um, or perhaps even by her children. In, in That might be in Matthew and Luke, respectively, um, which I take to have the sense of vindication. You know, it, it, in the end, um, wisdom will be revealed, will become um, uh, evident by the way it works out in practice and by uh, the fruit of Jesus's words and what what they lead to and and, and so forth and um, I think there's similar um, elsewhere where Jesus talks about um, people who justify themselves before men. That's people vindicating themselves before men. Now, I don't want to reduce justification in in James to vindication because I, I don't think that's entirely what's in mind. But I wonder if you think that that's a, um, uh, if it's right or helpful to think that it's got that nuance to it of vindication. Absolutely. I mean, I think even Jesus's words in mind is absolutely crucial. I mean, Matthew 16, you know, for the son of man is going to come with his angels and the glory of his father and he will repay each person according to what he has done. We've already discussed this in previous episodes, but the gospel of Matthew is uh, kind of looms large in James's mind. Um, it seems in his writing, I was going to say, I think that's absolutely right, that there's uh, vindication is definitely part of um, what justification is all about here. We could also add uh, what Peter has spent a good deal of time explaining, uh, written a lot about, and that is that there's an aspect of deliverance also with justification. So uh, this, when James talks about salvation, uh, here, can that faith save him? Can that faith deliver him? Can that faith rescue him? There's an element of um, the need that these people have to be rescued from their situation, to be vindicated before God and men uh, that they're in the right, uh, and to be delivered uh, from the situation they're in. So I think both sozo and, well, and salvation and and uh, justification here have this element, not just about individual salvation and going to heaven, uh, but also their their situa- their communal situation uh, and how they're going to get out of it, how God is going to get them out of it, how he's going to vindicate them, how he's going to show that they're in the right. And it's not just about their talking, especially their heated rhetoric. Uh, but it's about how their faith, how their trust is lived out in their community, uh, which is somewhat counterintuitive for them, uh, especially for them, you know, being influenced by 
the example of the zealots say in response to Rome that somehow behaving like this within our community uh, and to people that have needs is actually going to further our deliverance, our our vindication. And I, I think that element is here in this passage uh, and, and needs to be kept in mind. I think it's helpful to put our minds within the thought worlds that we encounter in places like the book of Psalms or Job or places like Isaiah, where there is this movement, there's this expectation that the Lord will act to vindicate his faithful people. Now, it's not enough to be in right standing with God if you're constantly living under a cloud of apparent judgment. There's the expectation that if someone is truly in right standing with the Lord, The Lord will vindicate them publicly in history, and there will be a manifestation of their right standing in their deliverance and the fact that their situation is set to rights. This is something that really drives the the narrative of Job, for instance. Job has, as it were, a seeming divine finger pointing down on him saying, this man is guilty. It's not just that he's suffering some um, reversals of his fortune, Fire has come down from heaven itself. It seems that he's been singled out by God for judgment, divine judgment, not just um, being suffered to experience some of the, um, the ills of this life. And in the same way, I think we have within the New Testament a need to read justification and righteousness language against this, this backdrop, this expectation that the Lord will act to vindicate his people in history. And so when people are talking about justification, there is a sense of being in right standing with God. And then this expectation that that's going to lead to actual vindication. There is an anticipation of that at this moment in time because Jesus Christ has been vindicated in the resurrection. And all those who are united with Christ share in that vindication. But then there's also the expectation that that's going to be confirmed and manifested more fully in the vindication of God's faithful people. And for people who are undergoing struggles and persecution, there is that hope that within their lifetimes, they will see the Lord's justice in vindicating them against their adversaries. You see that, for instance, in the prayer of the persistent widow or in other situations where people are looking for a divine act of justification, not justification as just this heavenly status that you've been shifted from one column to another, but an actual act of vindication in history that declares you to be in the right by an act of deliverance. And when we deal with the concept of justification, I think our failure to take into account that world of thought has made the concept unnecessarily difficult for us. Yeah, that's that's great. That's exactly... Alistair, what James does in chapter five at the end, his final exhortation to them is to be patient because the coming of the Lord is at hand, it's near. Uh, and then he he references Job and Elijah for examples of how God does vindicate his people when they pray, when they trust him. So yeah, that's absolutely right. And that's the way James ends his epistle, and we'll get there one of these years. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and and interestingly, justification is 
largely what Job is striving for. You know, it's, it's, it's a very key um, term throughout the book of Job. He, he wants to be uh, justified against the accusations of his friends who obviously claim there's some kind of secret sin in his, his life. There's some very simple cause and effect mechanism that can be traced to explain why he's going through all his uh, uh, trials and, and, and so forth. But um, all, all this, I mean, Alistair, as you were talking and Jeff, as, as you were talking again, all, all this just feels very uh, current to me. It, it, it seems as if we are entering an age where many of the views, the beliefs, the doctrinal um, uh, standpoints of Christians are becoming increasingly um, unpopular and where the church does have to be um, justified by her, her works in, in many senses. You know, as congregations, I feel that there, there is going to be um, uh, a sense in, in which, okay, we might have some unpopular um, beliefs, but if we do live good Christian, godly, you know, um, uh, outward-facing lives, then we can still, nevertheless, be justified by our works um, in in the sort of James-like sense here. And also, we should expect and pray for um, vindication of the Lord's people in history against their accusers, against those who would be their adversaries, and that our um, faithfulness will be manifested and the Lord will deliver us as his people from those who would mistreat or accuse us. And I often think that that aspect of our faith has been neglected. We've tended to shift that forward to the age to come and lost the ability to pray with the psalmist, with Job and with other characters within scripture for vindication in history. Yeah. So as James just mentioned, we tend to be Christian dissonance living in cultural exile more and more. And we're tempted to believe, uh, and this is where James, I think, speaks uh, very directly to us. We're tempted to believe that the most effective way of deliverance for us as this embattled community is verbal combat against the enemy. Now, I'm all for verbal combat. I think that's important, but I think we need to be careful that's not the primary way that the Lord is going to vindicate us. Um, if we're going to be rescued from our trials and our sufferings, it's not going to be primarily through talking and writing and lecturing. Um, and, you know, the theological accuracy of our words and speeches is important. Uh, but the internet is not the ultimate place where spiritual warfare is going to be won. Um, the kind of works that James identifies here as leading to deliverance and vindication is caring for brothers and sisters who lack clothing and food, sacrificial obedience when we're tested. Abraham is that example. Even risky, loving action to help those that need protection from danger, Rahab being the example of that. These are the kind of works needed in, in, in our times of marginalization. Um, and persecution even, and they might seem like impotent and ineffective kind of uh, strategy for winning. But, you know, again, the book of James, this kind of wisdom from above, this kind of 
behavior from above is what's going to produce a harvest of righteousness, of justice, uh, because it's sown in peace by those who make peace, as James will say at the end of chapter three. Jeff, I've, I've recently been going through sort of Psalms um, 34 through to 38 on my sort of morning walks, just having them on a, a bit of a loop. And it feels to me that so much of Psalm 37 lies in the background of these first two chapters of, of James. And I'm, I'm thinking particularly, I mean, in, right from the outset, actually, fret not yourself because of evildoers, um, it says, be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. There's a lot of chapter one in there. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord. Wait patiently for him. Um, fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his ways. And then sort of closing, refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. Wow, that's uh, that's James put to poetry and psalmody. Wow, that's really good. I'm not sure I've seen that connection, but certainly uh, the whole book of James is summarized there at the beginning of Psalm 37. Mm, right. Quick questions just on this, um, uh, how we think some of this fits together. So as I read the book of James, it seems to me that the uh, audience are generally quite poor. They are being oppressed by the rich, etc. Um, is this example in James 2 about kind of not feeding the poor if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of them one of them you says to them go in peace be warmed and filled um is this the kind of thing that the recipients of the letters are, are doing i mean it, it kind of given my understanding of the context it doesn't seem likely that they would but yeah what what, what do you think well in the commentary i make some references to their life situation and suggests that, that there might be you know, this calculated fear that sharing their limited resources with the poor who come to them for help or who need help might threaten their own livelihood, their own security. I mean, if, if this is an impoverished, banished people that James is writing to, and that's the assumption we're making or or that's the contextual assumption we're making all the way back in James 1.1, 1, 1, um, then this is, not, this is not an address to rich people to give out of their largesse, but to poor people to take care of people even poorer than themselves. Um, and to, so this becomes a rather radical kind of, uh, of, uh, admonition um to them i mean we're you know we in in the west especially the rich west we, we think about this in terms of giving out of our abundance but this would probably require them to give very sacrificially and it's that kind of faith that kind of trust in god is pretty you know, and again, it just it just raises it raises the the notches. Not it raises the level of 
what this what faith is what what true faith what living faith is i think for us it also draws the analogy between a workless faith and the sort of treatment that someone within their congregation might receive from someone who just put goodwill in their direction they would recognize just how painful and empty an act that would be and so how keenly they feel that is how keenly they should feel the danger of an empty faith. And, and this would highlight the fact that faith here is trust, um, not just assent to truths, but trust, trusting in Yahweh. And uh, this is one thing that I think needs to be pointed out for everybody as you look at your English translation. We have different words, different English words that sometimes translate. The, the common verb and noun, pistuo and pistis, throughout here, and it's all about trust. So even in verse 19, uh, you believe that God is one. Well, that's the word pistuo. You trust God is one. Even the demons have that kind of faith, which makes that statement all the more uh, shocking. The demons have that kind of faith, and they shudder. So faith, trust, throughout this passage is is trust in God, and especially in times when you have to sacrifice and you have to engage in risky behavior, that becomes real and concrete and not just an intellectual activity. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.